right. Grace and peace, everyone. Good to be with you. We're continuing in our series through Matthew. So open up in your Bibles or devices to Matthew chapter 10. We're just going to look at four verses today. Matthew chapter 10, verses 1 to 4. Reading here from the New King James. And when he had called his 12 disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. Now the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus, and Lebeus, whose surname was Thaddeus, Simon the Canaanite, and Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. All right, let's pray. Father, as we come before you this evening to sit at Jesus' feet and to, to watch and learn from him, I pray that we would be, uh, that we could be regrounded again in discipleship, in the, the strategy that our great captain has employed. I pray that we would use this as an opportunity to search our hearts, to search our church, to search our, our structures, to see if the, the same impetus, the same strategy that moved Jesus is, is active and in play in our churches today. And if not, may we repent and put ourselves back at Jesus' feet. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Okay, so we've talked a lot about the, the diptych of Matthew 4, 23, all the way to 9, 35. And so, remember the diptych is this two-paneled structure. And the left-hand side is the kingdom of God proclaimed. That's the Sermon on the Mount. And then the right-hand side is the kingdom of God demonstrated. Uh, and the kingdom of God, as you recall, demonstrated on the right-hand side is this gallery of miracles that we read in Matthew 8 to 9, where he does these three sets of three miracles. And then, and then interleaving those miracles are these instructions on discipleship, particularly on the theme of authority. And then right after the diptych, which ends in Matthew 9, 35. Jesus, we looked at this last week, looks at people with compassion and was moved by compassion. And we spent some time on that word. He was not moved by apathy or by, by disdain. He was moved by compassion. And we talked about how the English word compassion, that co-prefix, like co-worker, is like with. Passion is to suffer. So it's to suffer with. Um, in our freedom groups right now, we're reading an amazing book that uh, we actually did a reading this past week that did a similar deep dive into the word sympathy. And sympathy is very similar in etymology, both in Greek and in English. So sim, um, so soon in Greek is with, takes the dative, and then pasco is to suffer, so it's to with suffer. It's very, very similar there. And in, yesterday, in our freedom group, we looked at one of my favorite verses in Hebrews, where I'll just read it. It says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So, uh, that word sympathize there, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize. In other words, that's a way of saying our high priest can sympathize. He suffers with us in our weaknesses. Uh, that is supposed to be an encouragement in verse 16 to therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. Right. So basically it's saying if you understand the heart of Jesus, then you will come boldly because the heart of Jesus is to suffer with you. He is suffering with you. When you are physically close to your spouse and you hear their heart beating, it strikes me 
is one of the most intimate uh, positions to be in where you're laying on the chest of your spouse. You can hear their heartbeat. What if you could hear the heartbeat of Jesus? What if you had your stethoscope on Jesus' heart? What would you experience? What would you hear? What would you feel? It would be compassion. It would be sympathy. These are the, the words that quintessentially describe Jesus. They are his, his, his words that we should just cherish and use as motivation to constantly be going to him. The person who really knows Jesus, who really knows his heart, loves to come to him in prayer because they know that there's someone there who's suffering with, with us, with you. Okay, so we, this is all review. So why was Jesus compassionate? Why was he sympathetic? Well, we saw this last time because when he looks at the crowd, he looks at them because he looks at them as harassed and helpless or mangled and cast down because they're like sheep without a shepherd. And what he does is he then, moved by the plight of the crowd that's harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, he turns to his disciples and he says, pray therefore to the Lord of the harvest that he would send out workers, not hobbyists, but workers into his harvest field. And... I pointed out that in Matthew 9.38, that that word is really, it's a strong word. It's not the regular word for pray. It's not pros efkome. It's, um, it's a word that's like beseech or to beg. And I had a conversation with Bryant about this, uh, this word. I pointed out that it's in the plural, and I, I take that as a corporate command, but it is also about individual commands as well. So it's both an individual and a corporate. Um, and in fact, in Luke 6, this is not in Matthew, but Jesus then goes and prays all night himself right after this before he selects the disciples. Okay, so what happens in this account is very straightforward. He's just given this call to the disciples to pray to the Lord of Harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. Jesus then goes and calls these 12 disciples and he gives them the authority to do what he just did in Matthew 8 and 9. Okay, so we're going to see this as we go into Matthew 10, but in Matthew, he's going to give, Matthew 10, he gives his disciples the authority to to exercise demons, to heal, and also to preach. Basically, the diptych that we see in Matthew 4.23 to 9.35, that, that pattern, Jesus is going to say, okay, now you go and do this. He gives them the authority to do this. And so this passage that we're reading right now is is the transition between the diptych of Jesus' preaching and healing gallery to how he's going to now basically commission his disciples to do the same. So it's a very, very important passage. Jesus is called in Hebrews the apostle. So he's kind of the first apostle. And that apostolic activity, we see that in the diptych. And basically this this dual Jesus's word and Jesus's power, the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom and then the authority of the kingdom, that is what Jesus is, is asking his disciples to do in this, in this transition here. Okay, it's a really beautiful structure when you see it. I hope, you, hope everyone's following this. So we're, we, we move out of the realm of just kind of passively watching Jesus do everything that he does in Matthew 5 to, 7, 5 to 9. And all of a sudden, Jesus turns around and is going to say in Matthew 10, okay, you disciples, you go off and you go and do this. So it's going to transition from observing Jesus in action to the disciples extending Jesus' word and works in, in their own ministries. Okay, so I've got four points here that we're going to walk through in this message. So the first point I have is that the calling of the disciples is a polemic against the failure of the old leadership model. The calling of the disciples is a polemic against the failure of the old leadership model. Okay, so we just saw, okay, this is why the the chapter divisions are very unhelpful. We just saw in Matthew 9 that Jesus is grieved. Why? Because the people don't have a shepherd, right? They're like sheep without a shepherd. And what he then turns around and does is he appoints his own people, his own leaders, who are now going to be responsible for fixing this shepherdless state of the people. Okay? 
So this is very important. There's a, a polemic. Uh, polemic means, um, it's a good definition of polemic. Uh, it's a, it's kind of a strong, it comes from polemos, which means war, but it's a, a polemic is a, uh, means something like a, what? Argument. Yeah, an argument, a corrective, uh, something that's combating a situation. So last time I gave you these references from the Old Testament, I won't read them again, where this concept of sheep without a shepherd is found all throughout the Old Testament. And we are seeing here, this, is, this should be a passage that raises our, our attention because this chronic problem that we see all throughout the Old Testament of people being like sheep without a shepherd, here we see Jesus finally say, okay, I'm going to fix this problem. This is the solution. Okay, so this has been a multi-century problem here that has pervaded the people of God. And now Jesus is saying, I'm going to correct this through my actions. Okay, so we're going to be learning a lot as we go through the book of Matthew. (coughs) We're going to be learning a lot about leadership and discipleship as we go through the book. Uh, the, The positioning here of Jesus looking at people with compassion is intended to be a motivation for Jesus's prayer and Jesus's action. And I actually, I find this really interesting that the last verse of Matthew 9, this pray to the Lord of the harvest, that he'll send out workers into the harvest field, is matched in what we just read at the beginning of chapter 10 with action. He calls his 12 disciples. Okay, I love this because one of the things that we, we see in biblical prayer is that biblical prayer is always prayer and action joined together. And you, 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 you don't see, in biblical prayer at least, someone praying and then sitting around. They pray and then they step out to be the fulfillment and to become the fulfillment of that prayer. To, to pray without stepping out in action is tempting God. To, to just act and not pray is pride and hubris and arrogance and a sense of faithlessness. But for Jesus, what we see here is this beautiful pairing of prayer with action. They go hand in hand. Okay, so Jesus sees all the failures of the old Jewish model and he appoints his disciples, his apostles, to remedy that. And like I said, I want us to pay really, really careful attention as we go through a lot of Matthew, how Jesus is, is going to teach us about a new leadership paradigm that is designed to fix all the problems that existed in the Old Testament into the intertestamental period. Okay. Point number two. Jesus commissions his disciples early with ministry responsibility. Jesus commissions his disciples early with ministry responsibility. All right, so the disciples are young. They're very young. And they've only been followers of Jesus at this point for something like weeks to months. This has not been years. Okay, the whole time that Jesus had with them was only three years. And this is very, very early. And yet... Far earlier than most would anticipate, Jesus is already going to give them a lot of responsibility. So here he's giving them this mandate to go out and heal. And as they transition from being passive to active, it's going to be messy. It's going to be messy, right? They're going to do, they're going to do a good job, but they're going to make lots of mistakes. And the disciples are not ashamed to tell us about their mistakes. We... We go through, in the evangelism class, we read a book that uh, I really, really enjoy reading. I enjoy rereading it every year when, when I go through the evangelism class, which basically does this survey of, in the beginning of like the big movements of church history. And the author concludes that the majority of the significant movements, in fact, the overwhelming majority of the significant movements of church history primarily are happening among college-age people, right? It's just, it's just a fact. Um, and if you read about all the greats in church history, Hudson Taylor, Judson, Charles Finney, Spurgeon, the early Anabaptists, they're all young. 
they're all really young. I mean, if you're if you're kind of like in your 30s, you're sort of over the hill in in this in this uh, world, right? Most of them are like late teens, 20s. It's sort of prime of 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 life for when when we really see people have this really dynamic, powerful influence on the world. I was thinking about it as I was, you know, the Wesley and Whitfield and all, I was trying to rack my brain. Are there any examples I could think of of like really late bloomers? I couldn't think of any. There's probably some, but certainly the, the giants, the people who really make an impact in the kingdom, they start early and they kind of don't know what they're doing and they make a lot of mistakes along the way. And there's a lot of mess and there's a lot of problems, but they're, they're just, they start early. I think there's something to this. I think there's something to this pattern that we see here that Jesus similarly is, is demonstrating to us. The greats, I will say, within weeks, at most within months of when they were baptized, they were out evangelizing and discipling. Uh, my, my dad, my dad's a hero of mine. He, he was days. Um, from when he was converted to when he was out just preaching and going out doing evangelism and discipleship. I think I've told the story before about he was converted while he was in college and he just, boom, went out within days and was out there doing a lot of evangelism and discipleship. So we, we, we ought not to necessarily be, be afraid of mess. Um, you know, when, even when, when I look at the Apostle Paul, when he goes around and starts these churches, he starts these churches, and you know, hard to imagine being, being more well-led than having Paul there in your midst. And then he leaves, leaves without ordained leaders, and we know from all the letters that he writes that mess ensues, right? We see this in Galatians, we see this in Corinthians, we see that all, all throughout, right? There's this mess that comes in. And he doesn't panic. He doesn't, he doesn't say, oh, it was a huge mistake. I should never have done this and da 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 right? He, he, he manages through that and he writes letters and he appeals and he, he, he works through it. And I think it's a good reminder that it's okay sometimes to, to deal with mess. Life, ministry is, is filled like that. And a lot of times what we want to do is we want to get everything all exactly right and get everything buttoned down and, and ironed out, all of our questions resolved, all that, and then find, well, you know, that never comes. And you, you'll, you'll be an old geezer by the time that that's the case, if that. And, and in general, Jesus' model is to take a group of people who have not a lot of experience and just send them out. And kind of scary, but that's Jesus' model for how he operates. Okay. Point number three, Jesus selects disciples with specific characteristics. And we're going to go through these characteristics in a, in a moment. Jesus selects disciples with specific characteristics. Okay, this is, this is a very important point. This is going to be my longest point. We're really going to develop this one out here. So I'm first going to refer you back to David Brousseau's message that he gave standing right here where he has a message which is on our website, it's on YouTube, it's called What True Greatness Looks Like. Uh, I personally, I was there when he gave it and I've watched it again twice because it's so good. And I would encourage you to, to do the same. It's, it's a message that's really worth keeping regular review of. And basically, without taking away the substance of what Brousseau gave in that sermon, but he says, okay, Jesus, the son of God, who could read hearts, who was sinless, he doesn't just grab random people. He prays all night before he selects his disciples, which even that is very humbling to think about how sloppy sometimes we can be in our selecting of, of leaders and people that we work with. So, Jesus, who has all these abilities, just agonizes here in prayer, in this all-night prayer, to handpick these 12 disciples. And he, he picks 12 because the 12 tribes of Israel, um, Jesus is, is clearly building out the new Israel, the, the new people of God. And so there's an obvious correspondence there. We, we by the way, are supposed to be reading this story, this passage, 
very similar to how the Jews would have read in Genesis, Jacob and the 12 sons, right? Like when the Jews would have read that, they would have thought like, wow, this is our, this is our people. This is our history. We're the descendants of these 12 people, these 12 tribes, right? And that, that story in Genesis formed the Jewish identity in a very prominent way. This here is the building of the 12 pillars upon which the church is going to rest. And we should be reading this as like, whoa, this is our story of, of heritage here and ancestry. And this should be something that we feel very connected to. What, what Matthew does here, I hope you caught this, is he lists the 12 in six pairs of two. Did you see that? How he, he wrote it out? So it's, it's very clear once you look at it, you'll see there's six pairs of two. And this is, of course, going to foreshadow that Jesus wants his disciples to have this two-by-two pattern of ministry. And six pairs of two is a natural way of describing that. Okay, so now let's talk about the list of names in particular. Um, Berceau, in the message that I mentioned, the what true greatness looks like, he does a, an amazing job highlighting the, the humility aspect of the disciples. So hopefully you remember that. He gives a lot of great arguments there. I won't go through that. Um, I'll, I'll just say that one practice I would really encourage everyone to do is you should all have kind of a library of sermons that you listen to again and again, like the same sermons again and again. It's really good to do that as opposed to just like constantly be chasing novelty and like always grasping at some new idea and dabbling. It's better to have a few sermons that you just constantly re-watch and re-listen to that really become a part of who you are. Okay, so as I said, I'm not really gonna, gonna duplicate that because Berceau does a good, really good job with that. But I will mention this. I don't think he mentioned this in his message. This is, this is fascinating. Matthew, Mark, and John, there's this term apostle, right? Apostolos in Greek. They each use the term apostle once in their whole book. Each of them once. This is the only time Matthew uses the term apostle in the entire book of Matthew. It's kind of amazing. So I, I think a lot of people miss that. But when it says... In verse 2, now the names of the 12 apostles are these. This is literally the only time in the whole book of Matthew where the word apostle is used. Isn't that interesting? Mark uses the term once. John uses the term once. Luke uses it more, but in Luke's case, he uses it in a more complex way. Uh, If we have time, I might talk about that. And if not, I can talk about it afterwards when we discuss. So instead... What Matthew prefers, what Mark prefers, what John prefers, they prefer the term disciple. That's by far their, their favorite term for themselves. Okay, so like Jesus' favorite name for himself is Son of Man. And I gave a message about that, about why, why Jesus prefers the term Son of Man. I won't go over that again. The disciples' favorite term for themselves is disciple. And wh- why is that? It's for a few reasons. One is that disciple is a very humble term, Right? It means something like student or apprentice or learner or follower. It's a very lowly term. It doesn't have any kind of exalted connotations to it. If they had wanted to come up with terminology that lifted themselves up, they could easily have done that. They could easily have created this higher level structure there. But they they generally don't prefer that. The The word apostle invites a sense of... Like, oh, they're the apostles, right? But the word disciple, that's a very inclusive term, isn't it? Like, you and I are disciples. And that term that the disciples choose for themselves invites us into their company. I find that, that really interesting. So even that term disciple, it's easy to read over that quickly and just move on, move on through it. But I, I will say this, and... You know, you all know I work with a lot of companies. I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of companies in my in my career, and I've I've had minimum wage jobs at the at the lowest ends of companies. I've had I've had top level jobs at, at companies, and I will say, in all my years now, uh, it's been about 30 years of, of true paid work, that I I will say there's very few good followers, good disciples in the world today. 
that the word disciple is a humble word, and yet it's something that's very rare. So think about this for a moment. If I were to ask you just right now to think about in whatever experience you've had in organizations, in companies, and churches, and ask, like, what percentage of people would you observe from your own experience who, who really, truly, like, follow their leadership? What percentage of people really reliably do what they're supposed to do? What percentage of people actually follow instructions? What people show commitment and loyalty to the organization? What percentage of people genuinely want to learn? What percentage of people put the interests of the group ahead of their own? Uh, when, they, when there's a conflict between their own interests and the group, they say, oh, you know what, I'm going to put the group's interests ahead of mine. What percentage of people are on time and faithful to meetings? I will say, in my years of being in lots of organizations, religious, non-religious, you name it, it's a very small percentage. It's a very, very small percentage. Most people are not good disciples. They're not good followers here. Jesus selects, when he selects his 12, people who are good followers. They're good disciples, and we'll, we'll see some of that shortly. Okay, so what we're going to do is as we look through this list, I want you to first ask yourself, how do you fare at being a faithful disciple? How do you really fare? Again, just think about those things that I've mentioned there. You know, following leadership, reliably doing what you're supposed to do, uh, heartily following uh, instructions, showing commitment and loyalty to the organization, genuinely wanting to learn, putting the interests of the group ahead of your own, being on time and faithful to meetings. All right, so let's look now at some of the, the names that, that are in this list, and then we'll, we'll see some themes here. Okay, so the first person on the list is, of course, Simon, who's called Peter. And I think it's safe to say that Simon, who's always listed first in all these lists, he is a, an action-oriented, bold individual, right? Like, I think we would all say that without a lot of hesitation. When, when he sees Jesus walking on the water, hey, I want to go out there and I want to walk on the water too. When, it's when people are kind of murmuring at Pentecost, he gets up and gives the speech there. Now, sometimes he gets in over his head and sometimes he's presumptuous. We know that. But again, there's, there's mess in this. But nonetheless, Jesus picks as the most preeminent apostle a person of action who is decisive and bold. Uh, I'll, I'll read to you here a quote from Tertullian who, um, who, who marvels at, at Simon's character. In general, the, the, especially in the second century, they really are odd at the apostles. They're really odd at the disciples. And they find this, this, this real group of, of people that they, they find admiration in. And Tertullian speaks about how a lot of people in Scripture get renamed. Abram, Abraham, Sarai, Sarah, uh, Hoshea, Joshua, just all these examples, right? And this is another one. Simon's another one who goes from Simon to Cephas or Peter. And he says, was it because Christ was both, and he, Tertullian's musing here about this renaming, was it because Christ was both a rock and a stone? For we read of his being, of Jesus' being placed as a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Accordingly, he imparted to the most precious of his disciples a name that was suggested by one of his own special designations. So basically, he's saying that Jesus was this, was this stone of stumbling and rock of offense. And he says, you know what, Peter, you're, you're, I want you to have that name too. He wants Peter to share in that identity with Jesus. And Peter is also the one who, when it's time to deal with Ananias and Sapphira, Guess who's there? Guess who's the one who does that? It's him. He's the one who is, who's bold, who's strong, who's decisive, who's action-oriented. And of course, always, I always marvel at, at his humility as well. Uh, think about this for a moment. So you're the number one top apostle there. You're the top disciple among this group of 12. And Jerusalem is clearly the most important city. That's the city where where capital city of, of, of Israel, city of David, who are you going to install as the top leader there in Jerusalem? Who does Peter and the fellow apostles install? 
they install none other than James, who's not actually one of the 12. This is James, who's Jesus' half-brother, right? If, if, you were, if you were Peter or Simon, you'd think like, hey, this, like, shouldn't this be my job? Like, I get to be the one to preside over the most important church in the most important city. But somehow, under Peter's leadership, all these apostles find themselves fading into the background and handing over leadership to James. Okay. All right, the next person is Andrew, his brother. So the word Andrew comes from the word aner or andros in the genitive. It means manly. Um, so Andrew is a, is a manly, strong individual. And we know from John 1 that he was actually the very first disciple to follow Jesus. He, was, he came from John the Baptist. And John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Andrew hears this, and he decides of his own initiative to go after Jesus. And then what he does is he, his next move is to recruit Simon, his brother, to join them in that. And so Andrew, just like his brother, is bold and he's evangelistic. I mean, within hours of following Jesus, hey, hey, I got to get some other, other people here. He's also the one who, when Jesus talks about feeding everybody, He's out there and he's the one who gets the five loaves and the two fish. He's like, okay, Jesus, I scrounged this up. What are we going to do with this, right? Again, these two brothers are action-oriented, bold people, right? And they're at the head of the list. All right, next is James, the son of Zebedee. We, we meet them, we met them already in Matthew 4 as they're leaving their father. Okay, so leaving family is something that many of the disciples have to do. And Jesus apparently picks people who have the fortitude to leave family. Uh, that would have been very, very difficult, especially in that culture, to do. But they do that. So James is also a, a bold individual who's willing to renounce old relationship. We know that in other places, they're called, he and his brother are called sons of thunder. Now, this is, again, another fascinating discrepancy in I think all the modern commentators, what they say is sons of thunder is because James and John are short-tempered and because, remember how they tried to call down fire in Samaria when, when some Samaritans reject Jesus? And so all the modern commentators say, oh yeah, they're called the sons of thunder because they're just hot-headed and kind of angry people. Well, the early church, actually four authors comment on this. None of them take the title in that way. They take sons of thunder in a positive light. They believe that James and John being the sons of thunder is a reference to their bold speech, uh, very interestingly. And they like it. They applaud that. So they don't see it at all as a reference to, to, uh, to anything negative there. And in fact, James is the very first martyr of the church. So we see this in the book of Acts. And probably, my guess, I think this is a reasonable assumption, that Herod picked James because he was this bold, outspoken leader. And so if you're going to go after them, go after uh, to fall into bravado or brashness. And he wants them to be servant leaders, but he selects these, these brothers because of their boldness. Okay, then there's John, the brother. Okay, so John, who's James' James's brother, the name John becomes very popular in the Maccabean period. There's, there's a, a group of people who lead a revolt uh, one of them is John Hyrcanus, and, and a bunch of people, so they do very well for a while, at least under the Maccabean period, and the name John explodes in popularity because at least a certain group of parents admire these Maccabean leaders who threw off the, the, the shackles of these enemy forces. And so I think this actually says something about the parents as well, because apparently he has that, that name. Uh, John is, of course, the one whom Jesus loves, who, who leans on his breast. He was also a networker. This is really interesting. There's this little detail in, in John where somehow he has access to the high priest's house. I don't know if you remember that. But he had, even though he's a fisherman, he has access to the high priest's house. There was a guy who used to work at Eventide who had, a, had one of the lower positions in the company. He was basically a receptionist. And uh, some of you have been to, to the building that... I work at. It's a really nice building in downtown Boston. And one day I came in and I was chatting with this, this young man. And he said, oh yeah, I just had lunch with the owner of the building. And I was like, you did what? 
you had lunch with the owner of the building. The owner, the owner of the building is a billionaire. And I'm like, you're a receptionist here. And how did you, how in the world? And he's like, oh yeah. And I watched him and he was like, even though he was really low on the, on the eventide totem pole, so to speak, he was a networker. And this guy was like constantly making relationships with people who were with, and John was apparently like that. He's a fisherman who somehow is buddies with the high priest and gets access to the high priest there. And I suspect he uses that in his, I'm sure he uses that in his evangelistic campaigns later. He was also very brave. He decided to go back into Jerusalem. All the disciples ran away when Jesus was captured. But, but John decides, you know what? I'm going to go run, run right back into the heart of danger. And I'm going to be right there at the cross when Jesus is crucified. You think about that, right? Like, it's not a very logical move to make if your master is crucified right there. And you could be connected. You could be next in this, in this crucifixion. And John is also a person who's fiercely loyal. <clears throat> so he, uh, we know that Jesus entrusts the care of his mother to John when he's at the cross, right? That says something about, about his, his character. From church history, he stays in Jerusalem until Mary dies. And then he goes to Asia Minor and, of course, ends up writing Revelation and other letters uh, amazing individual. All right, let's do Philip. We'll go more rapidly now. Philip is the fifth person on the list. In John chapter one, we read about Philip. And what's the first thing we read about Philip? Well, guess what Philip does when he follows Jesus? He goes off and he recruits Nathaniel, right? You can go back and read that in John one. So I hope you're seeing a pattern here of the, of the type of people that Jesus is selecting. Um, I'll say, uh, we know very little about Bartholomew. Thomas unfortunately has this, everyone, when you hear Thomas, you hear the, you hear the expression doubting Thomas, right? And the, the modern world just is obsessed with like pegging that as his moniker. It, it's really unfortunate because Thomas, sure, I mean, at one level, he wasn't there in the room and he did want more evidence you know, I don't know, I mean, if you were in, in that position and everybody else, all the other 12 got to see, or all the 11 got to see Jesus, you weren't in the room, like, I think I'd probably feel like, I want to see Jesus too, right? But mo the modern world's like, you doubter, you know, you're something wrong with you. And this one minor failing makes him seem like kind of the loser of the, of the 11. I, I, it's so unfair that that's the case because we know that Thomas ultimately goes to India and the part of, of India where my parents are from in Kerala there is where he actually goes and I've seen the, the area where, where Thomas himself preached. He was martyred there in India. I mean, he's a bold individual who went all the way to Kerala to learn, I mean, the language difficulty, all that. Pretty amazing individual who sacrificed his life for the cause. It's interesting that Matthew places himself at position eight in the list, kind of this nondescript position right after Thomas, right? And then he calls him, he just says Matthew the tax collector. Interestingly, of all, there's four lists of the disciples. It's in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts. And only here do we see the tax collector used, which I like the way that David Brousseau explains it. It's like saying Matthew, the used car salesman, you know, that he's, he's very quick to to put that label on himself, to remind his reader of how lowly of a state that he comes from. So both in position, right? He could have, he could have put himself first on that list, right? He could have said, okay, I'm writing this. I get to, hey, I'm first gospel. I get to put this first. But at position number eight in the list. And then I'll just make one final, final comment here on the 11th person on the list. The New King James gives a better translation of it. It says Simon the Canaanite. The ESV and NIV say Simon the Zealot. Okay, that is a very bad translation. So it is Canaanite. It's not Canaan as in like the land of Canaan. It's a different word there. Basically, what has happened is that in Luke chapter 6, when it mentions Simon, it calls him Zelotes. Uh, so, zelotes is a word that just means zealous, okay? It's just the ordinary word for zealous. So, when Paul says, I was zealous for the law, uh, 
you know, in Titus, where he says that Jesus came to produce a people zealous for good works, it's zelotes. It's that same word that's used there. This theory emerged in the late 19th century that the zelotes was a group of like basically Roman rebels, and they hypothesized that Simon was in that company. Nobody in the early church thought that. It's completely made up, and it's wrong. Um, so it just means Simon, the zealous person. Um, the zealots actually didn't even exist as a group of people until AD 60. And yet, uh, unfortunately, as memes spread, they've spread into Bible translations as well. The New King James gives the literal word there, uh, Canaanite, which is a region that he's from. Uh, I think the ESV might put a footnote on that. I'm not sure. But if you want to look it up, uh, look it up in Greek. Just look at these. Uh, look at the Luke six one, and look at Galatians one fourteen, Titus two fourteen, First Corinthians four twelve, Acts twenty one twenty, and Acts twenty two three. All those places, the ordinary word for zealous is used. So basically, Simon was just a really zealous person. He was just this enthusiastic person who was known for his zeal. Uh, so despite these late 19th century speculations, let's stick a little more carefully to the, to the text here in the early church. Okay, so I hope you see some, some themes here. Besides humility, the character traits of the disciples that Jesus worked with are action-oriented, they are ambitious for the kingdom, they're zealous, they're evangelistic, right? I think it's a safe distillation there, those qualities. They're humble, action-oriented, ambitious for the kingdom, zealous, and evangelistic. These are the people that Jesus works with. These are the people he loves to shape and deal with. So good opportunity for us to take stock of ourselves. Are we, so the humility one, as I said, I'll, I'll leave that for the David Rousseau message, but action-oriented, or are we just like caught up in our heads and have to get everything just right and people of words more than, than, than actions? Are we ambitious for the kingdom? There's nothing wrong with being ambitious. And I, I, one of the reasons why I, I love uh, working with, especially young people who are ambitious, is that's a good thing. There, there's nothing wrong with that. That's, a, that's something that we should not lay down. I, I often think of 1 Timothy 3 when this passage, when this concept comes up, where when Paul's writing, he says, if someone desires the office of overseer, he should fall down and repent in front of the church because he's been such a proud person, right? That's what Paul clearly says there, right? You know, he says, if you desire to be an overseer, that's a good thing. He says, yeah, go for it, right? That's not, but in a lot of our circles, it's like, oh, you're proud. There's something wrong with you and all that. And Paul's like, no, don't. That's a good thing. Aspire to that. Aspire to be a person who turns the world upside down as the disciples were, were, were uh, called. Are you ambitious for the kingdom? Is that what you go to bed dreaming about? Uh, or is it career or friends or something else? Are you a recruiter and evangelistic, as we saw with people like, like uh, Andrew and, and Philip and uh, many of the, of the 12? Okay, so I hope you can see here some of the characteristics that Jesus selected when he picks his 12. My fourth and final point is Jesus focused on the few to win the many. Jesus focused on the few to win the many. All right, this is something that is in, I think it's in chapter four of, of my, my book, that I, I really think it's important for us now here at this present moment to think about this. So in this world of being spread out very, very thin, <laughs> uh, one of the things that we learn from Jesus is about investment and specificity into a small group of people. Okay, so again, son of God who is sinless, who has all the resources of heaven at his disposal, he picks a relatively small group of people, 12, and he devotes the vast amount of his energy into this limited number of people. If, if you have not read, there's a book that I cited a lot in my book, uh, it's called The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. You really need to read that book. It's an older book. It was written in 1963, but it is a gem. Uh, the, the title is actually misnamed. It really is more about discipleship than evangelism. It does have evangelism in there, but it really should be 
probably called the master plan of discipleship or the master plan of evangelism and discipleship. And he has these, I'll, I'll read you the chapter titles here because it's such a good book. Uh, selection, association, consecration, impartation, demonstration, delegation, supervision, reproduction. Okay, so every chapter covers a different heading of discipleship. It's very, very worth reading. Okay, so as I said, Jesus picks a relatively small group of people, 12. And even then, there's times where Jesus is like, I can't, I can't do 12, I can only do three. And he picks Peter, James, and John when he wants to really invest in a more focused way. And I, I think it's such a good reminder that the sinless, authoritative son of God on the earth couldn't invest in more than a handful of people, and yet we dare to believe that we can. And it's, it's really, really hubris, isn't it? The, the challenge here is to say, you know, who is your, who's your 12, who's your three? Uh, you know, start with the three, but, but maybe grow into the 12. And could you name them? Could you name them with the kind of specificity that Jesus does here? You know, I, I often feel that sometimes discipleship is this blob. It's this kind of amorphous blob that doesn't have hard edges to it and very poor specificity to it. Jesus does not do that. Jesus clearly here focuses in a very sharp, targeted way on a limited number of people. I'm actually going to read to you a, a quote from that Robert Coleman book, The Master Plan of Evangelism. Again, I think it's actually very appropriate for where we are right now and even what we just talked about in Agape. He says this, It is time that the church realistically faced a situation. Our days of trifling are running out. The evangelistic program of the church has bogged down on nearly every front, especially across the affluent Western world. In many lands, the enfeebled church is not even keeping up with the exploding population. All the while, the satanic forces of this world are becoming more relentless and brazen in their attack. It is ironic when one stops to think about it. In an age when facilities for rapid communication of the gospel are available to the church as never before, there are actually more unevangelized people on the earth today than before the invention of the horseless carriage. Yet, in appraising the tragic condition of affairs today, we must not become frantic in trying to reverse the trend overnight. Perhaps that has been our problem. In order to stem the tide, we have launched one crash pro pro program after another to reach the multitudes with the saving word of God. I'll read that again. In our concern to stem the tide, we have launched one crash program after another to reach the multitudes with the saving word of God. Here is where we must begin, just like Jesus. It will be slow tedious, painful, and probably unnoticed by people at first, but the end result will be glorious even when we don't live to see it. Seen this way, though it becomes a big decision in the ministry, we must decide where we want our ministry to count, in the momentary applause of popular recognition or in the reproduction of our lives in a few chosen people who will carry on our work after we have gone. Really, it is a question of which generation we are living for. It's, I, I, could, I could read this book. I, I, I thought about like reading a whole chapter and like big sections of it. I won't do that. You should definitely read it. It's a short book. It's, it's very worthwhile. But I think it's a, a great time to, again, take stock here and ask, like, are we following in the model that Jesus has demonstrated? Remember that he bemoaned, he, he cried, he, 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 his heart broke with compassion as he contemplated the sheep that were harassed and helpless because they lacked a shepherd. And here is going to be the beginning of the Jesus revolution of the, this program of discipleship that he kicks off at this moment of investing in a small number of people who are humble, who are action-oriented, who are evangelistic, who are zealous, who are ambitious. I really would love for us to just have some conversations here in our after meeting time about how's it going with our journey groups and LDGs and women's groups and all that. Are we accomplishing this or are we 
being caught up in in the 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 being spread out way too thin and not really investing specifically in a, in a limited number of people. Okay, so I'm very excited about the rest of Matthew 10. The rest of Matthew 10 is going to be now the speech that he gives to this this brand new group of people that he's going to commission out and to replicate the diptych, to carry out his word and his works into the lost. So uh, we'll stay tuned for that. All right, let's, let's close in prayer. Father in heaven, I, I want us to come before you here in humility and in honesty, asking about whether or not we are replicating the the state of affairs of, of being of people being harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, or if we are rather doing what Jesus taught and modeled about focusing on the few to win the many, about identifying a small number of people who are true disciples in order to change the world, to turn the world upside down. I pray that we would be people who are humble, who are action-oriented, who are zealous, who are evangelistic, who are recruiters, who are ambitious, who are followers, who are disciples, who have the humility to, to lay down our own individual interest for the sake of the church. I look forward, Father, to how you're going to, to work among us here. Give us grace as we step out in action. May our prayers and our, our actions be, be pointing in the same direction. May they not be at uh, merely orthogonal efforts, but may we align our prayers and our actions into a into a pattern that honors the, the teachings of our Savior. Pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.